You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, this is Arye, and I have a very important announcement about the future of Culturally Determined. This is the final episode that will appear on the Blogging Heads platform. I'm taking the show independent. So if you want to keep watching or listening, you have to subscribe to the individual uh, YouTube channel or individual podcast feed in your favorite podcast player. Links to those things will be below on the blogging site, or you can just search on YouTube for your favorite podcast app for Culturally Determined. Um, so thanks for watching and listening for all these years, and I hope you will stick with me in the future. And I'd also like to thank Blogging Heads and, of course, Bob Wright for hosting the show for seven years and, you know, letting me do it to begin with. So uh, enjoy the final episode of Blogging Heads, and I hope uh to see you in the future thanks hi welcome to culture determined on blogging stv i'm your host Ari Wade, and my guest today is chris novembrino chris can you please introduce yourself hi uh i'm chris novembrino i'm the host of don't worry about the government which is a long-running news and politics podcast it's actually been going since the late days of the bush administration right after barack obama's election uh, we've done 550 episodes. Uh, I was on during the Obama administration, on during the Trump administration, on during the Biden administration now. Um, yeah, no, it's it's interesting to see how time flies. And I'm also a professional musician as well. Right. And you've had me on your show at least twice over, over the years, maybe. I feel like it's been more than that. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm a bit of an Arya Cohen Wade fanboy as much as they. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's a, you know, a, a few, you know, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Um, Stan, we got to stand our man. Okay, so so thank you for coming on, and um, the topic is going to be a, uh, or at least our launching off point is going to be a column that Tom Friedman, uh, also known as Thomas L. Friedman published in his you know uh, op-ed column in the times and this uh the headline is biden cheney 2024 question mark and this um you know the, uh, the every you know three or four weeks there's a new york times opinion column that sets the twitter world aflame and this this is one of them and so both tom friedman's name and Biden Cheney 2024 were trending topics on Twitter. And it was mainly because people did not like this column. And, you know, that things that people don't like, you know, when it comes to the world of like takes are more likely to trend because people are saying, you know, this sucks, fuck you, go kill yourself kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, people generally are sick and tired of Tom Friedman and his sort of brand of, you know, center left, whatever. Um, but I think I even didn't read the column at first because I saw the headline. And I was like, whatever. Um, but then I read it and I was, I think I, it, it, it made points that the, just the headline and probably a lot of people always saw the headline and got mad. Um, uh, you know, and that's why the, that phrase trended, but it made points about, um, you know, current politics and the next election that I thought, had some importance and so uh <laughs> you volunteered to come on and discuss the piece so i was i'm more sympathetic to it than you are but basically the the argument that friedman presents is you know we're at some sort of crisis moment in democracy still and um 
you need some sort of cross ideological coalition um, to possibly, you know, defeat the possible 2024 candidacy of former President Donald Trump. And he uses a he uses the recent recent Israeli politics as an example where um, there was this bizarre stalemate situation in which there were four separate parliamentary elections um, in which no one could assemble a coalition. It was um, and so Netanyahu remained in power uh, from for multiple elections. Then finally, a broad coalition united uh, that was essentially bound together only by not wanting Bibi Netanyahu to still be prime minister uh, is now in power. And that coalition ranges from um, some people on the Israeli left to um, Israeli Arab parties who they have a traditional stance of not participating in any governing coalition as a, a protest against you know, you know the general Zionist project, I guess. Uh, so that is very unusual and, inc- and includes people on the far, Israeli far right also like settler uh, politicians. So, um, so Friedman wonders whether something similar could happen in America. And, and the key paragraph he says, uh, uh, I'm quoting him, says, is that what America needs in 2024? A ticket of Joe Biden, Liz Cheney, or Joe Biden and Lisa Murkowski, or Kamala Harris and Mitt Romney, or Stacey Abrams and Liz Cheney, or Amy Klobuchar and Liz Cheney, or any such, or any other such combination before you leap into the comments section, hear me out. And then he makes his argument. Okay. Did, did, did I sum up his essential case or at least oh i I think i think you did i think you did a fine job and and i i think i mean kind of in your framing we can see the issue with this article and sort of its argumentative form um i think there are two two discrete things there's the question of is the israel example really relevant and useful it does appealing to a parliamentary system um that has a a complete completely different electoral process actually make your argument stronger or better when you're talking about the American system or does it make you seem more out of touch? I'd argue to the latter, but let's start with the first premise here of American democracy being seriously under some sort of threat, if not from Trump, from small D anti-democratic forces, um, that there's a new appeal uh, uh, to an anti-democratic mode of politics, um, whether it's using the Supreme Court, whether it's trying to find little loopholes in the electoral system where you can defeat the popular vote using parliamentary tricks. Um, I think that question's very salient. And I think that I, I tend to agree with him that like there is a real problem and there is a real problem that necessitates a new and different kind of response. Um, Friedman's response here, I, I think, and, and his answer is the same old tired answer that I see, we seem to have been getting for our entire lives, right? It's, we just need a Democrat and a Republican to come together, put differences aside. I mean, I saw this in the plot of my fellow Americans with uh, Walter Matthau and uh, Jack Lemon. Like, like, like you, you get the Democrat. So when, when did that movie come out? Like the late 90s? The late 90s, right? Like, like this is the narrative you and I have been getting our entire lives. That like a good Democrat and a good Republican need to just kind of cut through the Gordian knot of the system and come together. And, oh, by the way, when that happens, Americans will be ecstatic about this there won't be any cynicism towards joe biden and liz cheney or an amy klobuchar and liz cheney or kamala harris and liz cheney or kamala harris and mitt romney america will be like i wasn't so sure about mitt romney i didn't vote for him back in the day i'm not so sure about kamala harris but when you put them together mm, like i think that that's the big failure 
uh, of a lot of this sort of brand centrism's imagination is, is that they, I think they've rightly identified a real problem here. We have a two-party system in this country, unlike Israel. And this is actually where I think the Israel like analogy is particularly unuseful. Um, in Israel, you have like multiple factions and you can cobble together a parliamentary coalition in a number of different ways. Um, there are dominant parties and less dominant parties, so there's more likely outcomes, but there's a wide range of outcomes. In America, you get two. You get the Democratic Party or you get the Republican Party. And what Friedman and others seem to be saying um, without kind of fully committing to it, is that like essentially you can't let the Democratic or you can't let the Republican Party back into power. And if that's the case, then there is really only one vehicle in town right now, and it's the Democratic Party, um, not some other weird imagined third lane. Yeah. And so, yeah, there, I mean, Friedman acknowledges the problems with his sort of metaphor, and he uses, he has this trope that he brings up at the beginning of the piece, which he, Refers, refers to the fact that he has used this before, which is Middle Eastern politics are off-Broadway, American politics are Broadway. Things start in the Middle East, and then we, and then 10 or 20 years later, we see them in the West. I think that's not, it's a stupid metaphor, and he's often bad at metaphors, I don't, I, but I think it, it, there's a salient point here. I mean, American politics has become more like Middle Eastern, you know, we invaded Iraq, and we, and we sort of like absorbed <laughs> um, you know, we absorb something about like the, just that a more tribal mindset. I mean, maybe it's just a total coincidence, but the, you know, American politics is more um, sort of, you know, either our side, if, if our side doesn't win, we're all going to die like that. Like everyone sort of believes that now. And that's sort of like the kind of politics that, you know, like led to the Lebanese civil war. It's like our art, like our tribe has to, defeat the other tribes or the other tribes are going to murder us all. And so, and he brings up like airline hijacking, building walls, suicide bombings, other things that started in the Middle East and then, and then spread to the West. So that's, that's the metaphor. Yeah. There's obvious problems. Uh, you know, the Knesset, you know, there's like 25 parties in the Israeli parliament. There's, I also just think of all these tiny, like tiny political little trends are globally parties. linked, right? Like, like we have, I mean, there's a great account that I follow called Populism Updates that gives you like updates about different populists all over the world. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see like MAGAism is currently traveling all around the world. Um, that you have MAGA types in Argentina. Uh, you don't right. even have to change the acronym or anything like that. I, I mean, <laughs> so I, I, I just like, I think insofar as Israeli politics has, has had an impact in American politics, I think it's a bit overstated by Friedman here, but I think maybe the biggest kind of clear line is Netanyahu's outsized influence in the American system. Um, I remember when Netanyahu like did this whole stunt where he like snubbed Obama by doing a speech to the Senate that uh, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell were willing to welcome. And, and I mean, like, yeah, it's so far as, as I think like anything really got imported into the United States. It was maybe a little bit of a streak of Netanyahuism. Yeah, I mean, Net Netanyahu is in, and Friedman says this, Netanyahu is kind of like the competent, intelligent version of Trump. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it's possible to say who is like the most successful global politician of the past 20 years like it, it, you could say it's netanyahu just because he's managed to stay in office and like avoid like you, you know it seemingly he, he can't be killed and then seemingly possibly is finally defeated although there was just today there was news that he might you know he the, the whole thing with him seems to be he was staying in office primarily because there's a, a law that like a, a a sitting minister can't be indicted and then he, he and he's like charged with various um crimes you know related to and stuff like that so it seems like he's close to doing a plea deal 
that would like bar him for like seven years from elected office. So then maybe he could make come back in seven years when he'd be like 79 years old. Anyway, so, so he, so, you know, Netanyahu has been able to cling to power in a way that Trump has it, but also has this angle of like, you know, he could just be indicted for, for, you know, um, common, you know, political, like, uh, corruption. And that actually, that actually happens in Israel, who Barack, uh, not who Barack, um, the prime minister was after Barack, whose name is escaping right now, did go to jail. Like, like an, an American president never go to jail. In Israel, the prime minister, if he, if he committed a crime, cannot end up in jail. So Daniel is his like personal freedom is threatened. Anyway, you know, basically, the we re, the we, reason I thought this column was interesting and people were shitting on it too much was like, there's a Netanyahu is a threat to the project of a Zionist and democratic Israel. In my, in you know, my opinion, as as an American Jew, um, the the project of of Zionist do- democracy is both younger and weaker, and maybe has more inherent flaws than the project of like American Republican democracy. Um, but is Trump a similar threat to American democracy, such that we need to do something, and maybe like there needs to be some sort of like popular front or grand coalition or something? To oppose him in the way that this crazy coalition involving, you know, Arab political parties and West Bank settlers all came together to just be like this Netanyahu guy, it, like he is a he is a threat to the entire project. We need to kick him out. Yeah, so there's a lot of problems. One is multi-party versus, you know, two-party, and like there's all coalition politics are super complicated in Israel, and so you can never have, you know, there's not like a swing party or something that that could come in and move the needle. Um, the other, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways that this, that the metaphor doesn't quite make sense, but the thing that, the reason I, I like this column stuck with me really is like, if, if, you know, if he had written this column, like January 10th, 2021, you could say like, okay, like Trump has been proven, you know, like, like basically everyone agrees that like this guy gets, needs to get out of here and is a horrible person. and never come back and you know the the past the th- something that has surprised me is that the GOP has stuck with Trump and basically assimilate assimilated this idea that the election was stolen from him which is plainly false and it's like the big lie and I've talked about this on the show before that like calling this the big lie is an insult to you know like the Nazi big lie about that led to the contributed to the, the Holocaust but I, I it, used to really res- like resist the phrase the big lie but I've got to be honest now that we are like nearly a year and a half into the stop this like Trump yeah, really the won't lie has gotten bigger it, or it, something. it's such a large lie that I like when someone goes it's the big lie I'm like I, yeah I don't love that but you're not wrong like it's it's this massive sustained push of a lie I I got a phone call from a Republican pollster about a week and a half ago. And I just sort of like faked my way along because I wanted to see what they were talking about <laughs> uh-huh. these days. I'm in Texas, baby. Like, I, right, I, right. I, I, I'm in Texas and my name's Kansas, potentially a re- Republican voter. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm on the phone with them. And we got into the, do you think the election was stolen thing? And I was like, yeah, I do. And I, I just kind of leaned into it. And I just wanted to see what the pollster said. And they were goading me on. They were like, no, I think it was stolen too. Um, I mean, like this is, they had a number of questions that were like push questions about the stolen election. And then they basically were encouraging me, as I said, oh, I think this election was stolen. Okay, this so this, this was more like a push poll than, than a legit 
Uh, no, I think it. I think it was a little bit of both. Okay. I, I, I was, no, no, because it was about the Republican primaries. They were they were asking me a question about all the different uh, random people running for judge and and, and that sort of oh, thing. Okay. But we, yeah, then we we then got into heavily on the. Do you think the election was stolen? And uh, yeah, like right. So I, you know, if you had asked me ten months ago, like would would they still be using the would the GOP have coalesced around this line that Trump was the election was unfairly stolen from him. I would have said, no, like, that's crazy. Like, did you see what happened to January 6th? Like, this is, you know, a, 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 a like tragic farce. You would have expected them to quietly back away into the hedge, like that Homer Simpson meme. Yeah, and, you know, Trump himself is such a fucking, like, dumbass and annoying person that everyone actually, like, everyone in power who encounters him actually hates. They had the perfect chance, you know, they, they came as close to impeaching and convicting you know, a president as it's happened in American history, but they, you know, came about 10 votes short or something like that. So they could have cut him off at the knees and prevented him from ever running again. And they chose not to. So that that's on the GOP. Um, and, but it's and, like, and it is it just like that. it is. Okay. So then it's like, you know, is, is Trump a threat? Is, is Trumpism a threat? Is there something that is Trump is like Trump himself is going to shuffle off this mortal coil at, at I'm dropping the Shakespeare references fast and furious. He's going to die at some point, like inshallah sooner rather than later. And then there's no, like Don Jr. Can't take over. And, and you know, DeSantis is not quite the same figure and JD Vance isn't going to do it either. And, is, and Tucker Carlson um, is probably too smart to want to actually try it. Um, and so there's no like heir to the throne. It's such a cult of personality. So he's going to leave at some point. And then, you know, it's not like, you know, like the fascist, like the next fascist leader kind of kind of thing would take over. And often fascism was much more of a personality than like, you know, other authoritarianisms of the 20th century kind of rambling here. But I just think, um, what you know, is is Trump slash Trumpism some sort of continuing threat to to American democracy, even after he plainly lost and it wasn't that close in 2020 and his deranged followers stormed the Capitol and made giant fools of themselves. On January sixth, surprisingly, it's it's more than I would have thought. Uh, like he, uh, no, he just keeps going. I I think the answer is clearly yes. Um, and, and I'm with you, like on all the the basic premises here. Like like Trump is unique in the sphere. There's no one who's clearly, at least apparently, as we are talking right now, poised to grab the mantle. But if you would talk to either one of us in early 2015. And you'd said Donald Trump was going to wrangle control of the Republican Party with like sort of like a B level parody of a Republican politic. Um, I, I wouldn't have believed you. I, I, if you taught me late December 2014, there's no, I would have right. been like, really, that guy's going to speak to the zeitgeist of the party. So I think we should always be careful when we go, well, there's no one clearly ready to take the mantle after Trump that we know of right now. Um, but that person is out there and I don't know who they are. I, I can't even speak to them, but they do exist. And so what you have to worry about is a, a pump that is primed when it comes to Trump. Um, and I actually, I mean, watching the events of January last year, I, I like, I was pretty preoccupied with them. Like, like it, 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 I thought that was, this is an important moment, unfortunately, in our country's history. And it became pretty clear very quickly that one, the Republican Party was not going to cut ties with uh, with Trump and the Democratic Party and the media were not going to actually change the way that they approached the Republican Party, um, the media in terms of coverage and the Democratic Party in terms of uh, what values they they tout. Uh, I mean, immediately 
after January 6th, there was already talk about bipartisanship again and a need to work work together from Biden and the Democrats. Um, that scared me. The media coverage of the Republican Party um, very quickly just reverted back to normalcy. Um, that scares me. That that alarms me. Um, and so, like, I do see threats to the democracy in the sense that, largely speaking, um, people are pretending that January 6th was just a really bad day. And maybe if like we really pretend like it, it'll be a thing we can laugh about, but didn't really happen and didn't really mean anything. And we shouldn't put too much stock into it. Um, and right. I, I mean, think I think denying it's one of the biggest threats to our democracy right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird. There's there's people, you know, like it's sort of like they flooded the zone. There's There's people out there who believe that, like, oh, this was actually like a false flag instigated by the FBI. There's people who believe like actually it was Antifa who was, who was doing it. There's people who believe, oh, these are just like jokers and fools. I mean, I basically think they're jokers and fools, but they managed to pull off this, you know, absurd feat. You know, I, I used to think that too, but then, now what I realize is there are jokers and fools, and then there are actually savvy operators who are operating within the, the morass of the jokers and fools. Um, and that joke, jokers and fools shouldn't be so easily dismissed because they serve as human camouflage. Right. And, you know, it's hard to, and I've said this on the show before, if like, you know, one of the big unanswered questions is of January 6th is why it was, you know, the, the preparations on the Capitol Police were so poor. And if they had, you know, if, if the, um, you know, if, if they had assembled with their riot shields and full armor and stuff beforehand and had like three or four times as many people there, then probably like the breaching wouldn't have happened. Maybe it would have been more violent or something, but, you know, it was bizarrely ill-prepared and whether that was through total incompetence or something more sinister, I think is still unknown. I, I usually assume incompetence when it comes to the government as opposed to something sinister. But um, so that is a question that needs to be answered. But um, so, yeah, so the, the, the they were jokers and fools, but they had been convinced of something by people who and then you, you have know, like real intellectuals like the guy from the claremont institute explaining how to like actually steal the election step by step during this i mean like they right. really put like an intellectual then, you know, skeleton behind all of this there, stuff. there's an interesting thing that I, I i saw um there was some guy who was in, in the trump administration and maybe that guy who was like what is his name i, I can't remember but he, you know there's there's a case to be made that um that the the riot actually undermined the the like the legal maneuvering coup attempt. Like if the riot never happened, then it would have been easier for them because the riots freaked everyone the fuck out. And so if they, if the riot didn't happen, then maybe the legal maneuvering they could have had a better shot at actually pulling it off. And and so you know maybe they were even working. Everyone is so absurd, you know, stupid that they worked at cross purposes. So that is that is. I know what you're talking about, and I remember reading that and thinking, oh, so their takeaway from January six was do it again, but do it less Trumpy. Um, and, and that that's scary, but, dude. If I do it again, you mean the the legal insider legal maneuver? Yeah, try try, try keep trying to keep trying to work it. Keep trying to work the rest. Legal insider maneuvering. Throw out the state. Schmoz it right. up. Um, yeah, like, like always schmoz. Like you have not lost. You have not lost until you have lost the last court case. Um, in January of the of the following year. Yeah, and I mean, if you know, once QAnon Shaman was in the well of the Senate, it became a lot more embarrassing for sort of like the marginal like 
Trump sympathetic, um, you know, GOP congressman to try to gum up the works. And that's why like the entire thing that they wanted to do of objecting like state by state, like very quickly unraveled, even though like 130 Republicans ended up voting for this thing like that, you know, it, it, it quickly f- fell apart. And so as is often the case in America, like, you know, a group of people try to do something and it ends up just like completely backfiring and, you know, the opposite of what they wanted to do um, is intended, you know, like, uh, you know, people protesting against the police ends up making the police more popular. Like, you know, this just seems to happen over and over again in America. I, yeah, no. And, and so like now let's fast forward to a year later where we had the one year anniversary of January 6th. And like, I think that serves as its own little commentary to the way that the country is or in the political class specifically is or is not processing this, right? Um, The Republicans don't even want to be in the room. At this point, they're so all in on the idea that like, this wasn't actually that bad. Um, that they're not even in to observe it or, you know, do do any of those sorts of ceremonies. Meanwhile, the Democrats, for their part, um, have gotten a hold of the director of Hamilton so that he can come on and do and sing a special song to from the play to commemorate this day. That was truly bizarre. Yeah, it's like it was truly. No, but but it, it was bizarre, but it's fitting with the same sort of Democratic Party that looks at police brutality on their television set and goes, let's get some Kente cloth and do a photo op um, like yeah. like and, and I think I mean, to me, you know, when Friedman's talking about the issues of like fascism and this this sort of like failure of the loss of the center right and this need for the center to come together and be strong i don't think there's ever a real forensic analysis of how things like the hamilton guy the kenta claw stuff like that leaves people cold and that's so much yeah so much of this stuff is is not actually speaking to people and that's how the center lost people yeah that i mean they were like the whole sort of memorial aspect of the first anniversary like you know I mean, it was so there were so many things that were deeply stupid about it. So one was that there were people on the right who were saying, like, let's not politicize this tragedy. Like, OK, this, you know, this was not, you know, like this is a this was a political event start to finish. So like that makes no sense. At the other end, it's like even some people on the liberal left side were sort of treating this like like this, like, you know, there was an earthquake or something and a bunch of people died in the earthquake. And so we're going to sing a song to commemorate the people who died in the earthquake. Um, like that doesn't make any sense either. I mean, the the side note that well, I'm sure was not intended and no one else got, probably a few people got. So I'm, I'm a big Hamilton person. The song, the, the, I don't know why they chose this song, Dear Theodosia, which is the song that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton sing to their newborn children, um, pro- hoping that this new country they're creating for them is going to enable them to like live better lives free of the violence that they just experienced as Revolutionary War soldiers. Um, in fact, both Theodosia, the, you know, Theodosia, Burr and Philip Hamilton die violent deaths. Um, and, you know, Burr ends up killing the, the older Hamilton. So there's a deep irony with within the song. Once, you know, like Theodosia was like killed by pirates and, and, and Philip, uh, Philip uh, Hamilton, you know, uh, was was killed in a duel uh, like, you know, like his father later would be. So, you know, there's an, I think there there's a layer of irony within this song, but that was totally absent of just having people on Zoom singing it. Totally bizarre. They don't. Nancy Pelosi is a good inside operator, but doesn't has very yeah. The Kenton Claw thing was was probably her as well, and that was an embarrassment. Well, these um, people are supposed to be the center, right? Like, like effectively, I mean, you know, running with like the Freeman sort of framing. Like, like uh, Biden is the eminent 
centrist Democrat. Pelosi is, I know she gets presented as a liberal and like the Republican boogeymanning of this, but she's the consummate insider, is actually pretty centrist, especially when you're talking about Wall Street sorts of policies. She's like, you know, pretty, pretty right. She's like pro the insider trading and everything. Right. Um, these people are supposed to be serving as the political center and they are failing. But, you know, you don't see Friedman lobbying a meaningful critique at Biden and Pelosi and sort of like the feckless Democrats. I mean, the idea of Joe Biden and Liz Cheney running together sort of supposes that Joe Biden has really actually captured the national imagination of people. <laughs> uh, and and well, okay, like, but, so this is where I think the in some ways the the whoever the whatever clever editor put, you know, Biden Cheney 2024 pissing everyone off. He, he basically he throws out all these different options. Like eighty five percent of them include Liz Cheney because there's not that many other people he could possibly stick with. But yeah, so I think it, it, that is absurd. And then I guess oh, the and fact, that we need to talk about Liz Cheney too. Well, the fact the was choice, that right? Liz Cheney and her um, elderly father, who I believe is named Dick Cheney, um, was were the only two Republicans in you know the 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 House chamber, or whatever, to observe this memorial that included the Hamilton clip. And um, I looked up, a dictator actually used to be vice president. Um, and, you know, and a lot of Democrats were coming up and like shaking his hand and stuff. And so, you know, Dick Cheney, like in a just world would probably be in the Hague. And so it, it's like Mitt you know, Romney couldn't even be bothered. That's right. Cheney and Liz, Liz and Dick showed up, but Mitt Romney couldn't even get himself to that event. Right. Um, so, I, but it's also sort of like, well, you go to war with the army you have uh, to quote another relic of the um of the all right Bush so running with it's that like, metaphor what kind of soldier is liz cheney then of well, what she, she utility is, is specialist liz cheney right but i mean the, the part of the reason trump was able to rise was that the gop was so you know i the metaphor i used was you know like trump was a, an infection and the gop was a, a someone who had cancer uh like rotting their bones but it wasn't immediately obvious and only like the the reason the infection worked was because the cancer had grown so deep so you know like there's no there's like who there's no like good republicans left um you know who you could appeal to like they're all tainted in various ways and liz cheney is very hawkish and i guess like is sort of a profile incurred because she could like lose her job um by you know she could just stay silent or something but she's obviously like does either really believes this or sees some angle in doing it but it seems more like she probably believes it because you know she's she's probably going to get primaried and 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 no longer be in Congress anymore because she's become so anti-Trump. But it's just like yeah, we're like we're stuck with these horrible people, <laughs> the GOP, who don't like Trump. It's like you know, it's a it's a really shitty. <laughs> like how so did you just brought up Cheney and that she's going to get primary. She's not going to be out there. Like this is another problem for Friedman's whole argument. The whole reason you would grab a Liz Cheney. Is because Liz Cheney has some sort of popularity base that but is she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't right, and, and I'm she with has you an on. elite. There's, there's a people in the elite like her, but there's right. no right. That's and, and like that's sort of the problem with modern centrism, right? Like that modern centrism is really a politics of the elite, and like on and there's like sort of a narrative here, like editorial centrism sort of thinks about this idea that like voters ultimately listen to the, what the Republicans say and the Democrats say, and they go. Well, he's got a point. She's got a point. And they land somewhere in the middle. Um, whereas I think like an alternative narrative of centrism, like an understanding political centrists in this country who vote um, the swing voting independence is that like, look at the polls. They're motivated usually by 
too little information and late breaking information rather than too much information. And because of too much information, a need to create a synthesis composite position, they just get blown. They end up blown by the winds of politics, <laughs> right. uh, to, to be clear, <laughs> and they land somewhere in the middle of the political valence. Yeah, the, yeah, the swing, the, the, the swing voter is not like someone who cares deeply about like balancing the budget, but also gay rights. It's someone who has like doesn't pay attention to politics, has like weird beliefs that don't make sense, but it doesn't matter because they're just a normal person who is going on with their life. And then like when the election comes, yeah, they're just like, oh, I guess I should vote. And they're not like pouring over like policy documents. They might be like, voting on the gold standard is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, they're, like, they're, they're, you know, they're well, you know, the Republicans probably going to bring back the gold standard. Yeah. Or maybe even they are voting the gold standard and they think the Democrats are going to bring back. Like it's probably just yeah, ill-informed right. people who just for probably for reasons that make sense to them, just don't pay attention to this stuff because who cares? Um, yeah. So that, yeah. And Liz Cheney definitely, you know, does not command a, you know, like, one tenth of the GOP, like it, like I mean, she, 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 like she won in Wyoming, and so she's like the at-large representative of Wyoming, but she's like clearly, you know, does not represent uh, like more than fifty percent of the Wyoming GOP, and so she's gonna get primary to lose, I assume. Who knows? Well, look at the Maybe. rest of the people on Thomas Friedman's dream team list, though they're not exactly political dynamos. Uh, I don't see a Barack Obama on this list. You got no, Kamala it's, it's, Harris, whose poll numbers stink and have stunk, and they stunk during the primaries and they stink now. You got Joe Biden, uh, a guy who limped his way through the primaries, and his poll numbers have not really been where he would want them to be during this presidency. You got Amy Klobuchar. Uh, a person who failed to break double digits. I, I mean, you're looking at a lot of people who are duds. I, I notice that Friedman doesn't want to like do any sort of business with Bernie, for example, here. But if you were actually and, and who's the one guy in the Democratic coalition who seems to have a little bit of crossover appeal with the right wing? And we can speculate as to why or whatever. But Bernie Sanders is that guy. I mean, I literally saw a car I, on Twitter earlier uh, that had let's go Brandon and a Bernie Sanders bumper sticker on it. <laughs> like, like if you were actually going to try to create this coalition rather than have AOC go and get coffee for Amy Klobuchar and Liz Cheney, like Thomas Friedman basically proposes. Um, like you would actually be using AOC who's unbelievably popular. You'd actually be using Bernie Sanders who had a huge fan base um, and still very much has the imagination of the youth. I mean, you'd be, and like not them exclusively, but they would be really important messengers um, and, and to that point. Yeah. So he, so there's a line, in, there's a line in there where Friedman says something like, you know, in his imagined grand coalition, like, AOC would have to like, you know, bite her tongue um, and put, uh, you know, some of her preferred policies on the shelf to save American democracy for for Liz Cheney and boost yeah. Liz Cheney. It's not the other way around, right? It's not Liz Cheney going and saying, you know what, AOC is actually good. And a lot of the stuff <laughs> you've been hearing your whole life about her has been crap. Um, no, it's the other way around where AOC has to go around and go like, ah, Liz Cheney. Yeah, no, she's great. We like her. Um, I, I mean, there's there's just like a lot of like built in biases here. And, and I, I just. As I think about the team that Friedman wants, I don't see them actually capturing people's imagination. Uh, they, it, largely speaking, too, the only people who know Amy Klobuchar are columnists. People like you and me know who Amy Klobuchar is, but like the the rank, the run of the mill swing voting independent probably has no idea who Amy Klobuchar is if we got 100 of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, OK. Yeah. I, and I mean, the people who he proposes on the right are the aforementioned Liz Cheney and then Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney. 
both of whom, you know, I guess, I guess they both voted for impeachment. Uh, so they get, you know, a pat on the back for that, but are otherwise more or less, I guess Murkowski maybe a little Murkowski bit more. Murkowski voted against Kavanaugh, and they Manchin voted for Kavanaugh, so I, I like Murkowski. Yeah, more and, and, you know, Romney, I think actually, you like, does have some sense of, like, dignity or something, or like, He has you know, moments that are not bad. I'll give him that. Yeah, but yeah, it's a pretty, you know, it's a thin bench to to draw from for this Imagine Grand Coalition. Okay, so let's see. Well, so and again, you know, the whole idea is a popular front, right? Like, like, if you're going to have a popular front, the front has to be popular. <laughs> yeah, um, good point. And actually, I mean, that, well, we can talk just a little bit about, I mean, so I'm thinking of the unpopular front, and that's the name of the substack that the writer John Gans does. And I've had John on this show before, and he wrote an interesting post. We don't need to talk about it sensibly, but he, you know, there's been a running debate, is Trump a fascist or not? What it, did January, how did January 6th affect our view of that? He tries to look, uh, he tries to maybe draw somewhat back from the idea of fascism, which is, of course, very historically lo- loaded. And he he looks at, he calls it Caesarism and also looks at things that happened in France, like in the 1880s or something, uh, and various like other movements that maybe were sort of proto-fascistic and comparing it to Trump and Trumpism and drawing, you know, what, what can we say once we say that Trump is not Hitler, like, you know, where do we classify his ideology? I mean, I've been saying for a long time that like Trump has no, Trump can't be a fascist because he has no ideology and he just like believes in himself. I still basically believe that. And it's, you know, the cult of personality aspect has only increased since, you know, he lost the election um, because all it basically is, is about is like, you know, getting him back, getting him back into office. There's no, like they barely talk about policy um, or, you know, that we're actually, we're going to finish the wall or anything like that. Like, it's just like, you know, bring, put the big man back in, back in the Oval Office. Um, so well, anyway, we'll link to this piece and it's, it, 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 it takes a serious look at these things. I mean, Gans himself is a leftist and, um, and I think, yeah. Th- so the idea of the popular front, I think was like, you know, the, it, the socialists and the communists, you know, putting their differences aside to fight against the fascists. And often that didn't work because the socialists, and the communists decided they'd rather fight against each other. Um, and then the fascists were able to defeat the, defeat them both. And I mean, he does, he notes, which I think is kind of right that like, the left, you know, the liberals' response to January 6th is epitomized by the Hamilton Zoom musical. And then the left has, doesn't really have a strong response. And I think there's various reasons for that. But it serves as a damning critique of them, though. I, I, I don't know if that's where you're going, but that's kind of where I'm at. Um, it, it, that there have been a number of discrete points over the last four or five years where the left's basic approach, like kind of like the more Brooklyn coastal left sort of approach to this big podcast, that sort of thing has been to be too cool for school for all this stuff, that these things happen and they're cool. They got, you know, they got their jokes and they got the other things. And all of us who are like, maybe actually kind of worried that we're going to have an election and gets overturned us squares out here. Like, (laughs) yeah, no, don't get me wrong. I roll my eyes at the liberals and like Pelosi and all like we were just bashing them. But like, I also think, that if you want to actually go like no those guys are clowns here's the right way to process this actually present an alternative thing and and you lose traction with other people i mean like for me i check out when i go i think it's a big deal when someone goes well i don't think it's a big deal at all uh, i think you're overreacting I'm like okay cool that's neat i just not listening anymore uh-huh. to what you say yeah i mean i you know the i mentioned this 
immediately after January 6th that like, I think some people on the left were sort of like more, you know, far left were sort of like um, embarrassed that like the, you know, there was an American storming of the Bastille and it happened with MAGA people instead of like the proletariat uniting as one to, you know, topple the <laughs> capitalist oligarchy or something like, you know, there, there finally was some sort of, you know, pop- popular up- uprising of sorts that uh, well, right. it's a rebuke of their whole, how bad can this really get guys sort of approach for four years, right? Like, like the storming of the Capitol is pretty freaking bad. Uh, yeah. So, either, so, I mean, it, it's hard, you know, it's, it's complicated because there, it was, to, it was uh, like farcical and serious at the same time and disentangling these things is hard. And so uh, if we're thinking like Chapo Trap House as the epitome of the like sneering Brooklyn left or something, I don't know exactly what they say about January 6th, but they're probably just making fun of them as, as they, you know, many people deserve to be made fun of and, um, and laughing at it, but, um, and then probably, and, you know, mocking the, you know, the maudlin liberals, you know, shedding a tear. Uh, and um, in, in its own way, I think that does as big of a disservice to actually processing the event as sort of like the freedmen. Well, you know, the the Republicans did a really bad thing on that day. But also, we got to remember, sometimes liberalism goes too far, guys. <laughs> um, I basically view that as the mirror image. And so like, like when I'm reading uh, Robin's article here and he's talking about the communists and the socialists not being able to come together to form a popular fund. And I'm looking at the American left and like the liberal establishments sort of two ways of being wrong and processing this discrete event. I'm like, yeah, no, no, I can totally see how the, how this scans here. Um, in, in terms of fascism, it's never been a word I've ever been fond of and using with, with regards to Trump. Um, I, I get that it's like too tempting to not use kind of like the right's obsession with socialism and communism. It's just like right there and you just want to go for it. Um, but I think like fascist has been like, it's like a vague term too. I tend to always use the Mussolini perfect merger of the corporation, the state thing. And when I think of Trump through that prism, it does nothing. Um, and, and to your point earlier, because most, of corpor- I think- most of corporate America was like, you know, they were probably were happy about the tax cuts and the lack of regulation, but they were, embarrassed by him and and they got what they want out of biden too yeah yeah they're they're getting what they want out of biden yeah yeah they're they're perfectly fine with biden yeah i I think to your point no no here the last thought here is so i think you're right when you say trump's not a fascist um and and i think if we think about his ideology you're you're basically right too where like you don't really have like it's it's like a reaction thing, right? Like it's like I just want to get back in office, bro. Like, like, like we got it's kind of the genius of the big lie is that it actually allows him to have one singular policy, which is correct the grievous error that happened four years ago, um, rather than actually have a policy position. But I think this is where I think the fascism discussion often kind of falls short. You have Trump and his rootlessness and the type of people that Trump attracts who seem to very clearly have some sort of ideology guiding them. Yeah, I mean, there's there were people who were willing to die for Donald Trump on January 6th, and some of them did die for Donald Trump on January 6th. And, you know, a more competent demagogue, and it would probably require more dire circumstances in the country. Of course, the pandemic is continuing, and maybe that if there's some sort of second economic crash, you know, there were people willing to sort of be the shock troops of some sort of, you know, like conservative popular street violence again at the time like the whole thing was like this fucking joke and if if the cops had been well prepared and weren't wearing like bike helmets then they would have easily repelled these 
you know, morons more or less. Like I'm so it's it's <laughs> it's hard to say, but I don't know. I mean, there's people willing to die for Donald Trump, who's a deranged former game show host, you know, some sort of, you know, fi emergent figure coming out somehow, you know, who isn't a total, you know, narcissistic fool um, could, you know, harness this energy. And I think that is sort of what the, the essay, again, the essay, uh, which is called What is Trumpism, in case I didn't mention that, um, is sort of getting at like, you know, yeah, what, you know, the the things that the man seemed to represent, you know, is could some other person t pick up this banner and run with it? Like, at the same time, you know, Trump's, I don't know, like a lot of people who, who attract a cult of personality are unusual people and, you know, have like idiosyncratic views or personalities or something such that they seem sort of like jokers. At one point, then you know, I'm sure Mussolini seemed pretty absurd before he marched and, and on Rome. Going back to that that Twitter account I mentioned earlier, populism updates. Um, you actually, if you follow that, especially when you have no frame of reference, you will see these random politicians, oftentimes right wing, and they look very goofy and zany looking. And um, I used to chuckle at them, and I have now learned better because that's part of the act. Having the big crazy hair, the weird gaudy leather jacket, uh, the strange beard, the questionable like weird oversized glass, like that's Boris Johnson's disheveled hair that he deliberately dishevels. Um, those are all part of the act. And, and I think like it's a, a big stark contrast. It's like the central casting thing, right? On the right, they have now kind of casted with those sorts of characters. Meanwhile... Um, the Democratic, like, left establishment, the center establishments, these boring older people in suits with no personalities. And especially when you are going to a, an electorate that's not getting good information on a regular basis, you've got the bombastic person and the boring person. They're going to bias towards the bombastic person more often than they bias towards the boring person. The boring person is going to be a choice when the bombastic person falls short. And that's where I think the center is, I mean, like, looking at Friedman's thing, I mean, you 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 don't get much more boring than Amy Klobuchar. There is <laughs> she had one joke. She had one joke, and she kept telling it over and over again throughout the entire campaign. A guy like Donald Trump would eat her lunch. That you know, it, well, that would be an interesting contrast. It's it's hard to imagine it. Um, and you know, I mean, Trump is like, you know, decline like his decline continues. Actually, I saw a clip from his rally a couple, maybe it was even last night, and. It, it seemed, I mean, it was only like a 30 second clip or something, but he's saying like, they say the big lie. You know what? They're the big lie. It's just like, he seems sort of tapped out. Like he doesn't quite have the juice that he once did. He's a year older as we all are. Um, and he probably, you know, is not keeping his mind as agile when he's just sort of golfing all day. Wordle is right there, Don. <laughs> Wordle is right there. Everyone's doing it. Yeah, but I'm that what yeah, his comment, you know, if you were still on Twitter, he might be posting his um his wordle grids. Um but yeah, so I I I think Trump is continuing to fade. Of course, you know, Biden is fading in various ways as well. Um someone has to win. I don't think it's going to be Trump. Uh, um and I I posted on the blog his forum. I think he's more likely to be in prison than the Oval Office in 2025 uh still. I think he can win the nomination, but I think winning the nomination and winning the presidency are two vastly different things. And I mean, like right now, he seems poised to just completely sweep the nomination. But like, yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I think that's all fine and dandy. And then we have to relitigate the Trump presidency again. And for as, as frustrated as people are with Biden, I think rethinking about a second run with Donald Trump should give people pause.
I would think so. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I mean, Trump analyzing Trump's psychology in some way is sort of a mugs game because he's so bizarre. Um, but you know, the things he's doing, like, you know, this, I don't know if you, if you say it SPAC or if you say SPAC, the sort of, it's like, SPAC. This, it's okay. SPAC. Yeah. It's like this investment vehicle to sort of like, um, create a shell company that investors can pump money into before the anything actually exists. So he's doing something like this. It's like a media company that is like his challenge on Twitter. It seems like a total scam. Well, like that's the sort of thing you do when you just want to make more money, which is his essential, one of his essential goals. Like that's not, you know, that's not like going to Iowa and like shaking hands at the fair or something. Like he, it seems like he's moved on to other grifts. Um, the SPAC thing, you know, like billions of dollars are being pour- are pouring into it. You know, I think he's probably cares more about that than he actually cares about being president. I think anyway. that's right. But but let us remember how his first presidency ran his first presidential run sort of started. He was like in the middle of a contract negotiation and basically was just using the presidency as a way the presidential campaign as a way right. of leveraging. Um, and then it took off. Um, I, I think what Trump learned. Uh, over the four years, and you saw this, like, in you know, I followed the Mueller report pretty close. This is another thing that, like, you know, unfortunately, nothing happened on. Um, but I was following that pretty closely. One thing you kind of get when you're, like, reading kind of the blow-by-blow and stuff is, like, Trump's people started to realize that a presidential campaign is a pretty dope business, actually. That like, 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 like you could actually do a lot of things and like you don't actually make a product like, like they're, 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 you have a lot of the trappings of a business, but without like any of the expectations of a business and like they just give you money like like they just they literally just give you the money right. to like be you uh, like it's pretty <laughs> it's pretty awesome, actually. Uh, so I could totally see Trump running again, not wanting to win the nomination again um, and winning the nomination again. <laughs> yeah. another. <laughs> accidental another like producers theory kind of thing of he's trying to fail and was again there's too much there's too much money i guess another way of looking at this is why would he leave the money on the table and not run again well if he can get this you know spac thing apparently it's being investigated by the sec but if if that doesn't fall you think that's really gonna hold for four years that spac deal is gonna fall apart with it i I don't know i mean he he is uh i mean he's a he's the most successful con artist in human history you know in my view so he probably has something else up his sleeve. Um, and, and, but it's, you know, hard to predict. And, you know, we're three years away from the presidential election and he might drop dead. Although I think both of his parents lived like to 95 or older. So he has good genes, as, as he likes to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, to reiterate my point, I do think that the sort of like, quote unquote, big lie, the term I don't like, like is turning out to be more of a threat to American democracy than I thought it was. And uh, they're really sticking with this thing, and and the 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 moronic GOP base is slobbering up or slobbering and and gulping down the slop, and like they love it, and it seems like that is now you know part of the GOP catechism is that you have to believe that the election was stolen, and um, you know everything rolls from there. Um, so that is you know a, a lie that is you know to satisfy one man's demented ego um and yeah so something there i think the threat is more than i would have guessed even like after you know january 7th 2021 when the you know the crazy rioters had been repelled 
like they the, the GOP is just so craven and has and, and, and fallen for me, in line. It's it's this last year of watching Joe Manchin basically saying we need to go and work with them. And, ba- and the sort of media coverage around Joe Manchin as a guy like being like, oh, yeah, no, he gets it. Manchin has uh, Manchin for his own part, never acts like there was really anything wrong with January 6th, never acts like there was any- like if this guy was really a leader, he could have actually been the guy like spearhead a bunch of reforms after January 6th, bring the Republicans to the table, all that sort of thing. Um, I, I, I to me, the continued threat to democracy is that there have been no reforms put in place. The general mood towards the Republican Party in both the media coverage and among Democratic leadership is the same still. That like, okay, Ted Cruz is a jerk, but he's in Senate. What are you going to do? Uh, Josh Halley's a jerk, but he's in the Senate. What are you going to do? Rather than like going like, no, actually, there are certain things you can do in this life that once you do it, you've gone too far. Ted Cruz saying, I want to go and defend the stop the steal narrative before the Supreme Court on January 5th. Josh Howley inciting on the protesters. Yeah, Go get him, I, guys. I, I like, actually, you, you, yeah. yeah. I, I, you cross I, I, re- lines. I re-listened to the episode that I taped like January 8th, 2021 with, with Bill Black. Um, and one of the things I to sort of see how my like, you know, 48 hours later punditry um, held up. And I think it held pretty well. But one of the things I said was, you know, it seems like there could be an opportunity for the GOP to expel Cruz and Hawley, and they would be replaced by, you know, boring GOP politicians who would vote the same way, but wouldn't be giant assholes and like drive everyone crazy. And here's the perfect time for them to do that. That obviously didn't happen. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the rank and file deluded um, people that, you know, or the people who, you know, thought they were, it was a new, a second American revolution happening. A lot of those people are suffering consequences and um, have been, you know, uh, uh, kept in kept in prison and sometimes in um you know it's been revealed how how poor like the average i am hearing inmate. i am hearing that sometimes prisoners are not treated very well in this american system yes so um, um but yeah so the 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 people who were deluded and and fooled into into doing this are suffering but uh, no one in at any level of power um has and I guess what troubles me is when you open the New York Times or you open the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, like these are papers of record. And so you look at a Thomas Friedman article like this or anything. These people get these positions that are super unique where they're able to put out into the world like what should we ought to do? Uh, what what are the world of possible options in some case? You know, I don't want to get into Overton window theory. Everyone who already understands it, understands it. And anyone who doesn't can go and Google it. Um, but like they basically set the contours of what acceptable debate is and what Friedman, especially in his specific little niche at the New York Times and how he's presented at the New York Times is giving us is the one option to resist this future. And it sucks. It's, (laughs) it sucks not only on a policy level, like, and Friedman sort of admits that like, oh yeah, sure. If we had like a Cheney Harris presidency, it would stink. They wouldn't get anything done. Uh, Uh, But you know, like what else are you going to do? And and I think like we need to have other options. Um, I I think that these newspapers, like part of the failure here, the scary thing about one six is that we're not actually thinking bigger. Um, I don't expect the Republicans to transcend themselves. At least I don't. I know that I know a centrist writer does. I don't. I expect 
the college educated centrist calmness to transcend themselves and realize that like there are two parties in this country and one's actually fundamentally worse morally speaking right now in terms of like how they feel about like elections and stuff not like policies i'm not talking about abortion or anything what is actually worse than the other right now just say it just say it present it as a fact and and the right's going to get right about uh, upset about it and they're going to claim liberal media bias and you know what it'll be tuesday they do that every week um but say the truth don't keep well, saying, yeah. Don't okay, keep I saying will say, that these guys. Uh, in defense of my, in a you know, mild defense of Friedman, he basically says, um, and perhaps explicitly, the current version, the Trumpet Trump GOP. I mean, no, I found the line. He says this Trump cult version of the GOP must never be able to retake the White House. Um, so, that, and that's so he, fine, except that he keeps mitigating that statement with other things that, like, the Democratic Party is. He keeps saying, like, you know, essentially, the Democratic Party has gone too far as well. Like, all both parties need to chill out. But the Trump GOP should never get back in. Yes, it's 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 sort of. I don't. Do you follow that the New York Times Pitchbot account? I, I had the guy on the show last year. He, He's quite par- good. He parodies this sort of like centrist kind of thing where it's like, you know, um, you know the the Democrats believe in critical race theory and the um, Republicans believe in you know violently overthrowing the government and we need to condemn both these things equally. Like that is sort of you know, like the editorial line, but I think Freeman is going farther. He's saying that the current GOP can't like, it, it would be a disaster for the country if, if the, if the Trumpist GOP regains power and you need to do something to prevent that. His solution for reasons we've, we've discussed in this episode would, would never happen to begin with. And even if it did, it would probably backfire. Um, so something, something does need to happen. That's not happening now. Um, I don't know exactly what it is, but I basically, yeah, but basically I think he did identify the problem in a way that was crystallizing for me. Is Trump a threat to American democracy? Yes. We need to do something different. He doesn't have the answer, but you know, Oh no! I, 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 on on this, I, I completely agree with the establishment Terrence. That there is actually like a, a danger with what happened on January sixth. I think their reaction to it has been somewhat maudlin, and or when they come up when they. If I take them seriously and go, oh, they actually care, their their solutions like what we discussed here are just simply not up to the task, which is, and I guess my last thought here is, haven't we tried the centrist president? Aren't we doing that right now? Isn't that like what they sold us all through the Democratic primary? You have to vote for Joe Biden because Bernie Sanders is too left. And what we re- need right now is a national unity government, not unlike Israel. Um, it, it, I feel like I was hearing this during the election. So to hear it now again. Yeah. It, it just I go. Did we learn nothing? Because that was it, it. Was one thing to say that during the election. Then you have the election. You have the centrist guy as the president. He's doing how he's doing. Look at the COVID numbers. Um, and then one six still happens. So if Mister Centrist guy was actually going to handle this, he would have handled it by now. Yeah, Biden is. Yeah, that was the you know the most conservative of the major contenders in the Democratic primary. Whereas, you know, in 2016, Trump was like the most far right um, of the of the contenders. And, you know, we saw what happened. Um, OK, maybe we should end things there because I'm sure. approaching exhaustion. Uh, we're recording this late at night. Uh, but anything else you want to mention or, do, or want, plug your podcast and your Twitter and where people can find your stuff? Absolutely. OK, so don't worry about the government can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, uh patreon.com slash dwatg a buck a show is all i ask if you want to support my work over there don't worry about the government i'd love that uh patreon.com slash dwatg 
If you like professional wrestling, you probably weren't expecting that pitch, people. Uh, (laughs) But if you like professional wrestling, I'm actually on the Voices of Wrestling Podcasting Network, the other show that I've been doing that has like 500-something episodes. It's called Shake Them Ropes. You can hear me talk about WWE, like the Ultimate Warrior, baby, shaking them ropes. Uh, Talk WWE, AEW, and all the news um, in the wrestling world every week. Um, Okay, that's cool. I mean, you know, uh, politics and wrestling became much closer to each other during the Trump years than they were before and and the the way that wrestling clarifies what's happening in the world of politics you know is, is important <laughs> i think the, you know well. this is this was sort of my niche during uh during the trump administration there was someone else who basically flanked me and took this even though i have like a better I, not, not not bitter not bitter like sometimes the internet picks different people but uh yeah no like that that was my prism for understanding uh the trump years uh very much wrestling helped me out um, yeah i mean and trump, I, trump himself appeared i mean did, i did an episode about this actually uh with uh owen ellickson in, in like 2017 like you know i mean trump appeared like his friends with um McMahon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah McMahon yeah. and and would appeared in various like you know WWE um, shows and stuff. Um, and yeah, for, you uh, know. Uh, no, I mean it's more than that. Vince was running um, events at the Trump casinos back in the '80s, so way before Trump ever did the run in the aughts, where they did the hair versus hair thing with Bobby Lashley. Um, actually, you can see old WrestleManias and other like Royal Rumbles and stuff thrown at Trump casinos. The relationship with um the the relationship with McMahon goes way back. Right, and um, McMahon's wife was in the cabinet, right? Yes, she was. Yes, she is like now. A small business wife. or yes. what? Yeah, small business administration or something. She was given some post. Um, also, yeah. So that I mean, that's uh, a rich angle and probably one that you know Democrats want to study how to you know defeat a, a heel. Um, <laughs> they should. Uh, I, I'm available, wrestling. guys. Hit me <laughs> up. Uh, and, and if you want guitar lessons too, uh, follow me at dwatg or shoot me a message at dwatg. Guitar, bass, music theory, anything you want to learn. Okay. Okay, Chris, thank you for coming on um, and talking about this with me. Um, you know, people should uh, subscribe to Culture Determined in their podcast feed uh, because uh, very soon after this episode, perhaps immediately after, um, I'll be leaving the uh, Blogging Heads platform. So if you want to keep on getting this, you need to uh, subscribe to the show individually, either on the YouTube channel, which is, uh, you know, Culture Determined or podcast feed you know on whatever your podcast service is and yeah okay and you know racw on twitter etc um okay so thank you chris thank you to our viewers and listeners uh will we see you again next time i guess that's, that's a question depends what i'm doing one more of these i'm lying heads but um either way uh thanks for watching and uh see ya <laughs>